I can't get in Putin's head, but I would imagine the last thing he wants is for the U.S. to just directly enter this war. So he's not looking for a fight. But what he is looking to do is poke us at those lower levels and kind of let us know, hey, stay out of this airspace. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. This week, we talk defense of the high north and the Pacific with the 11th Air Force Commander, Lieutenant General David Nahum, and UAV expert Dr. Caitlin Lee reviews the Russian takedown of the U.S. Reaper over the Black Sea. And we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace. Maintaining U.S. air superiority means 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling for the F-35. The GE Aerospace XA-100 engine is tested and ready to deliver these strategic capabilities. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, you and the entire Defense and Aerospace Report team joined me yesterday for a look uh, at the Biden administration's $842 billion defense spending uh, request. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit uh, about that in a moment, but walk us through the headlines uh, this week on All Wings Considered. Well, to sum up, Vago, and I do commend folks, listen to yesterday's program to get a real picture of what's coming in the defense budget. But it's a very aggressive air power budget. The Air Force requested 19 more F-35s than they projected last year that they would. The Navy is in for 15, the Marine Corps for four. There's an increase in the F-15EX fleet goal. That's going up to 104. New starts, the collaborative combat aircraft, the E-7, replacement for the E-4B National Command Posts. And the Navy is starting to put some serious money behind its next generation fighter. All of that gets paid for by fleet retirements in the Air Force, including the KC-10 and J-STARS. The T-7 trainer is deferred while Boeing works out some technical issues. And there's no further procurement of F-18s or V-22s, and only two C-130s left on the line. In other news, Air Force One goes retro with the new VC-25 sporting a livery familiar since the early 60s. Poland is preparing to transfer its MiGs to Ukraine. The U.S. State Department has approved the transfer of AMRAMs and HARM missiles to Taiwan. And F-35 deliveries have resumed following the investigation into an F-35B incident that made for some seriously viral video. But the big news is the U.S. losing an aircraft, a remotely piloted MQ-9 Reaper, to Russian action over the Black Sea. And Dr. Caitlin Lee, senior fellow at the Center for Unmanned and Autonomous Systems at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, will join us shortly. Um, I'm uh, going to take this opportunity to uh, discuss. Thanks very much uh, for uh, the summation. And on yesterday's program, uh, as everybody knows, our sponsor, uh, GE Aerospace, uh, was hoping to see uh, the adaptive uh, engine or the alternate engine uh, make it into this budget. And unfortunately, the overall top line budget was a little bit lower uh, than anticipated, and and that fell uh, off the list. How do you think that's, uh, just really quickly, uh, JJ, and you mentioned this a little bit uh, uh, yesterday. 
Um, that is going to become among the more controversial items. Well, there are two controversial items, right? I mean, one is the sheer number of retirements. We talked about the RQ-26. Uh, now that Adam Kinzinger is no longer uh, on the Hill, that airplane uh, is going to go away as well, right? So once you lose advocacy, things happen. How's the overall numbers debate going to go? How's the engine debate, do you think, going to go at the end of the day? Well, with regard to retirements, and the Air Force is planning to retire 310 aircraft in this year's budget proposal, the Air Force has a habit of proposing retirements without a carrot, without a, but here's what you get to offer the Congress people whose districts are being impacted by those retirements. This year is different. This year, they're coming along with programs. Sometimes that means new aircraft in the short term. Sometimes that means a little longer wait before a new tanker replaces the KC-10. But they're coming along with, and here's what you get. And that makes for a very different congressional debate. With regard to the AETP engine that you were mentioning, yes, it was one of the last things that came out of the budget when the top line came down. I've been looking at Secretary Kendall's statements regarding that engine, and none of it says this is a bad idea or something we didn't want to do technically. It's all we just ran out of money. In a traditional congressional process, that means it's the first item that's on the unfunded requirement list that Congress asks for every year when they ask the services, what did you want that you didn't have enough money to get? So I think that program is far from over. Uh, and I, I should point out, right, I mean, I think we were talking about something like $50 million uh, or so, but obviously, right, I mean, when the top line drops by by a couple of billion dollars, it consumes a lot of other programs. And we should point out Pratt & Whitney, uh, the maker of the F-135 engine, has made the case, hey, look, from their perspective, it would be cheaper to invest in upgrades to that engine rather than developing an all-new engine, even though if you listen to senior Air Force leaders as well as Lockheed Martin, a new engine really is what's necessary to extend the, the range of the aircraft, improve its cooling, uh, et cetera. They want the technology. That much is clear. The Air Force has been uh, unambiguous on that subject. The question is, how does it get funded in its development phase, which, by the way, is pretty well advanced already? And reminder, this is a competitive program. Both Pratt & Whitney and GE have AETP technology engines. So it's not a matter where Congress is being asked to support one company over the other. Uh, that's uh, ab absolutely uh, correct, right? Both of them are working uh, on this. And then there is also separately the, the upgrade that Pratt & Whitney uh, is uh, is proposing, even though there's a sense that you know GE may have started from a clean sheet and, and may have a little bit of an advantage on, on a new engine. Let's uh, go to the other elements of the budget. KC-10, uh, there are those who are scratching their heads a little bit, right? I mean, we have a new tanker program, right, XYZ, uh, truncated, entirely new, some bridge airplanes uh, likely to be a sole source to Boeing before developing an all-new tanker aircraft. And in this context, there are a lot of folks who say, look, if the Asia-Pacific is your big focus, don't get rid of the KC-10 because it is the single most capable tanker aircraft we have. Walk us through uh, you know, the dynamics of that portion of the debate and the case the Air Force is making to get rid of the KC-10 as opposed to keeping it around. The idea behind the KC-10 retirement is, and the Air Force has been saying this for some years, what they really need to do to save money is to get rid of entire fleets. Getting rid of a few aircraft out of a fleet doesn't get you the kind of savings you need because it, you have to keep the overhead in place to support that platform, no matter how many you have, unless that number is zero. They've been impressed enough by the performance of the KC-46, 
as it's come off the line, that they think they can fill that gap, particularly with, as you mentioned, a procurement of an additional number of bridge tankers to get us from the current KC-46 to the next generation aerial refueling system that's technically going to replace the KC-10. But I got to say that the announcement that they are getting rid of the KCY program is bad news for Lockheed Martin, who had hoped to play in that program, but it's probably also bad news for Boeing. Boeing built 100 or is in the process of building 179 KCXs. That's the KC-46. As we know, financially, that's cost Boeing a whole lot of development money. They were hoping to get well by selling another 179 KC-46s in the KCY program. Now that instead of 179, that's going to be 75 aircraft, even if it is a sole source to Boeing, that's a lot fewer aircraft for them to get healthy on. Uh, and, and, and we should point out, right, I mean, in the immediate wake of this uh, announcement, there were uh, there were folks who observed that pretty much everybody would be upset with this decision, right? Uh, both both of the competitors, but for very very different reasons. Although I I would say Lockheed uh, several years ago, the Skunk Works folks did have uh, very uh, provocative and thoughtful. I think it was Jeff Babione uh, when he was uh, at Skunk Works, right? I mean they had a model they displayed at AFA on Skunk Works' 75th anniversary, if I recall correctly where a lot of folks at the at the time were like, oh, this is very fanciful, unless you really thought about it. So that those design studies and work, you know, may, may have sparked some creative thinking. I mean, is that is that your sense, right? Or or is this threat data or, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I sort of feel like, well, Lockheed, you have not, you know, if you didn't get the customer thinking differently, they might not be doing this, right? Well, and the customer is thinking differently, which is why they're now looking at a tanker that is survivable in forward areas, looking at today's threat. The question becomes, how much offload do you sacrifice in order to become stealthier or to be able to operate at uh, greater ranges from your bases? And that's a trade that's going to take some years probably to figure out. But we've seen ideas from both Lockheed Martin and Boeing of what such a thing might look like. Boeing has been working with NASA for some time on a blended wing body aircraft, and not coincidentally, a few weeks ago, it appeared in tanker guise uh, at an exhibition. Well, how about uh, how about that? On a on a somewhat lighter note, uh, I want to commend the President of the United States for bringing back uh, the traditional Air Force One uh, paint scheme, the iconic Ray Lowy uh, paint scheme. But it's a but you made this observation before anybody else did, by the way but it's different. How is it different? Well, it's a little different in a couple of ways. One is that they've changed the shade of the light blue. I'm not sure why they've changed the shade of the light blue, but they have just a bit. But more importantly, or more significantly in that paint scheme, you're not gonna have polished metal anymore. Why? Well, the outer skins of the 747 that they're using for Air Force One uh, don't polish up. They're alloys, or in some cases, carbon composites that have to be painted over, but they don't get bright and shiny when you polish them. So if you're used to those pictures of the 707-based Air Force One with its very bright underbelly and parts of the nacelles, that'll be a little more subdued on the VC-25. Uh, I'm, I am uh, somebody who likes retro paint jobs, and I thought it was very cool uh, that the uh, newest version of the 747, the Dash 8, uh, Lufthansa had in its original 1970s livery but for those same reasons, they could not have a shiny aluminum 
to that. Uh, it is a, a gray silverized paint they, they use instead. But I, I say it's still a pretty good paint job. And before we hear from Dr. Lee, a reminder, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security and hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is the Mitchell Institute's Dr. Caitlin Lee, one of the nation's leading experts on unmanned systems uh, and all that governs and affects them. Caitlin, welcome back to the program. An absolute pleasure having you on. Great to be here today. Thanks, Vago. So I want to start with uh, the downing of the MQ-9, and it has sparked a debate about the role of unmanned aircraft and whether we need to retaliate, right? Do we need to retaliate? Do we not need to retaliate? There are those who say unmanned platforms like this exist to be lost, as the former uh, Air Chief General uh, Ryan uh, so long ago, right during the Balkans uh, Balkans campaign, uh, said that predators were valiantly giving their lives in the line of duty. Others, however, maintain that allowing this to go unpunished sends a very bad message uh, at a time when other potential adversaries will uh, try to intimidate U.S. or allied unmanned systems, particularly those operating in international airspace and international waters. We want this to be rules-based. At the end of the day, that's still you know, American state property. You know, What's the right way to look at this uh, and how the United States needs to respond to this or not. It's an unmanned system that's designed to be expendable. Yeah. So I think the first thing is just to step back a little bit and think about, well, what were the Russians trying to do here? So this midair collision happened over international waters. But after the event, Russia did, I think, accuse the U.S. of violating the boundaries of the international airspace that they wanted to kind of box off for their special military operation in Ukraine. And so they did try to assert a little bit here that, you know, hey, we believe this is airspace that that we don't want the United States and its allies operating in. And so it does seem like there's a signaling going on here. And so then the question becomes signaling deterrence occurs at different levels of war. You know, you you talked a little bit about before the show, you know, nuclear deterrence is obviously the strategic level, but there's tactical coercion that happens too. So ta- tactical coercion is this idea of, you know, sort of using leverage, the power to hurt, to shape adversary behavior. So you can see here in this incident where, you know, Russia is essentially signaling by uh, messing with this drone, engaging in unprofessional behavior, signaling, hey, get out of our airspace. I put R in quotes. So then the next question becomes, how do we react to this? And and to me, I you know, I'm sort of delighted. Like this was a hugely cost imposing endeavor for them. They sicked two fighter jets on this $30 million drone. Um, so they were diverting resources they could have been using for other things. I'm sure those fighter pilots' hearts were in their throats when they actually crashed into the thing. Um, this was just an embarrassment for Russia, basically just launching two of their manned jets at, at a unmanned system. And uh, so I think it was hugely costly imposing for them. And so this doesn't worry me too much. I don't think there's any need to for retaliation. And that's not certainly the U.S.'s historical approach to responding to the downing of unmanned aircraft. And that that really is the beauty of them, that they reduced costs in terms of blood, treasure, and political capital. I mean, contrast this. So this was embarrassing in my view to Russia, but contrast this was like back in 1957 when Gary Powers, U2, was shot down How over Soviet territory and how hugely embarrassing that was for the United States because we got caught. 
So um, I think there's a lot of sort of favorable dynamics to what happened here for the U.S. Um, so Russians are going to do what they're going to do. Let them do it and waste their valuable assets on this kind of stupid behavior. Well, now let's break that down a couple of ways, because uh, you talked about there being norms of behavior in this. And we're still really developing those in a lot of ways for uninhabited aircraft. First, how does the response and the range of justifiable responses change when it's an uninhabited aircraft as opposed to if there were a pilot aboard? And secondly, does it matter what model of aircraft, what size of aircraft this was? Are the rules the same for a Scan Eagle patrolling fisheries over international waters as they are for a Global Hawk going up the Arabian Gulf? Yeah. You know, obviously there's a big difference in price point there between a little scan eagle and a really big long range global hawk. Um, so there's there's money on the table. But I think um, in terms of how we respond to these things, eh, not much difference. I think for the U.S., you know, the way that our sort of value system works in the U.S., uh, human life, air crew is really where we sort of have tended to draw a line historically. And even then, we don't always react. I mean, there were a number of mid-air collisions between the U.S. and the Soviets in the 1950s. And, you know, the goal is always to manage those situations, not to allow them to escalate. So, uh, now you take the man out of the situation and there's even less real reason to do much about this. I mean, and, and you have to realize this is really part of a trend in Russian behavior. If you look at Russia's the VKS or the Russian Air Force's behavior in Syria, they're routinely, I mean, even at the open source, you know, just Google it. I mean, they've been harassing Predator and Reaper aircraft in uh, Syria for going back years. And we don't tend to respond to these things. We just watch them do it. We watch them expend resources trying to do it. And we don't respond. And I'll even just go one step further. Back in 2015, you know, Russia publicly claimed to have intercepted intercepted a Hunter drone in Crimea. And Hunter is, you know, much smaller than Reaper. You know, we didn't do much about it. And same thing in 2017 when uh, Russia did a dangerous intercept of an, a Reaper in uh, Syria. Um, and again, in 2019, we, you know, we don't tend to respond to these things because, you know, every, really at the end of the day, the goal is to avoid escalation. And, it, and if there aren't even human lives on the line, it's pretty easy to just say, okay, you expended resources on this, like that's your choice, Russia. Let me just ask one uh, follow though. So it doesn't matter that it's manned or unmanned when it's in international airspace, right? I mean, the concern I have is, I know that we have 300 some odd uh, Reapers and Predator aircraft, right? Mm -hmm. So you could have the expendability approach to this because they're just rotting in a boneyard. I mean, one of the reasons why I think we should be giving them to the Ukrainians as opposed to them doing any, you know, no good to anybody out there. But are you setting the precedent of expendability as opposed to saying this is sovereign American military hardware that will go unmolested, right? I mean, are you opening a door at a time when we want to use more unmanned systems and that we in the United States are likely to respond, you know, to respect the flag on that vessel, right? We, we are not going to board in general a Chinese even unmanned system, unless there's reason to do so if it penetrates American waters, for example. Are you setting the precedent that if you're going to have unmanned reconnaissance systems throughout the South China Sea and the Russian and, and the Chinese claim all of this as their sovereign airspace and they start shooting them down, is this setting a, a, a bad precedent? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the next question is sort of like, if you think it has to be responded to, what is the appropriate response? And I think, I mean, I hate to say this, but it is so contingent. At least with the Russians, we have this sort of language of deterrence that we've developed with them over 50 years. And we do have these deconfliction lines. I mean, and the deconfliction lines happen at different levels of war. Like, I, I'm not sure that we have a tactical airspace deconfliction line for the Black Sea. Uh, maybe maybe we need one. Don't know if Russia be interested in that. But I think there is at least one deconfliction line just over the Ukraine conflict that we have like a hotline to pick up the phone and say what's going on here. But if you think about China, I mean, you raise a good point, Vago, like that's a different game. We don't have a language of deterrence with them and we don't always understand what their behavior means. And uh, so this is something that we'll have to worry about. You're, you gave the example of the South China Sea. You know, what if it was actually an intentional shoot down of uh, unmanned system in that area and how would we respond to that? I think I think it's completely context dependent. I think escalation management is always going to rule the day in terms of how we respond. Are we in the middle of a conflict when they shoot down a reaper or are we in the competition phase? I think all that matters a lot. And so you'd want to think about sort of ways to respond that aren't turning up the heat too much. Um, and so that's a really kind of long and sort of unhelpful answer, Vago. I'm sorry in saying that it is completely context dependent. I think if right. you look at Black Sea incident, no one wants to see escalation there. I Frankly, I mean, I can't get in Putin's head, but I would imagine the last thing he wants is for the U.S. to just directly enter this war. So he's not looking for a fight. But what he is looking to do is poke us at those lower levels and kind of let us know, hey, stay out of this airspace. And so, you know, this is an incident where, though, at the end of the day, though, I think the Russians just ended up looking rather incompetent. I don't think it helped them at all. So um, in this case, like the response doesn't make sense. If you bring that to the Indo-Pacific, I, I do think that's really a different ball of wax and something something we need to give some real thought to. I don't have good answers. So in this incident, it goes back to the old adage that if your opponent is screwing up, get out of the way and let them do it. Amen. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a, a good friend uh, said, uh, do stupid things, win stupid prizes. And that's uh, it might be where, where we are. One last question, Caitlin. It doesn't matter if it's a, in the immortal words of Jeremy Clarkson, it doesn't matter if it's a mansion or a bungalow, if there's a lion in the house, the lion is the thing, right? Does it particularly matter how they downed the aircraft, right? I mean, they doused it with aviation fuel, obviously, uh, the senses to obscure the sensors. Uh, then they got into a collision situation. In the end, it was forced down, even if no air-to-air -air weapon was used, just like a Chinese pilot, whether he intended to or otherwise, managed to collide with an EP-3 and bring it down, and, and it was an intelligence bonanza uh, mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day. Does the hybrid nature of the downing matter at all, or is the downing the thing? I think it does matter. I mean, I think it does matter because I think the whole point of the, this activity, this harassment of U.S. unmanned systems is really a great exemplar of sort of this gray zone activity, this, you know, how far can I push it without provoking a response? And um, so the fact that they dumped fuel, tried to, you know, muck up the sensors on the Reaper or whatever else they were able to do before they crashed into it is exactly this kind of just poking and prodding and trying to see where how far they can take it. Um, and I think it does, again, matter how they did this because um, the fact that they screwed up and crashed into the thing just embarrasses them. So it kind of ended up favorably for us. Now, in contrast, imagine a world where they took a direct shot at the Reaper. That's probably a little bit more escalatory. Uh, historically, we haven't done anything about that. You know, think about the Global Hawk shoot down uh, by Iran. We don't respond to that. But it, it definitely would have I think, you know, it, perception is everything, but that would have been a little more provocative. 
and maybe wouldn't have made them look so stupid. So yeah, I think it does matter how they shot it down sort of tactically, but doesn't change like the overall escalation dynamics, if that makes sense. Great. Caitlin, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for all the insights. And a quick word from our sponsors. Our coverage at the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Air Warfare Symposium was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And our coverage from South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, was brought to you by Bell and Leonardo DRS. And a word from our air and naval coverage sponsor. Helicon Chemical is solving the military's biggest pain point, range in conventional and hypersonic domains. Using their patented binder technology, they offer the ability to upgrade legacy missiles by combining the stability of solid rocket fuel with the performance of a liquid propellant. Learn more at heliconchemical.com. While at the Aerospace Warfare Symposium, Vago was able to speak with several significant Air Force leaders. Last week, you heard his discussions with the Chief, General C.Q. Brown, and with the 7th Air Force Commander, Lieutenant General Scott Ployce. And now, here's his conversation with Lieutenant General David Nahum, Commander of Alaskan Command, the 11th Air Force, and Commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command Region of NORAD. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. We know how busy you are and really appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, thank you very much. It's great, great to talk to you guys today. I want to uh, start off with uh, the lessons that are being learned uh, over the past year. You have Russia's war on Ukraine, and more recently you have uh, the Great Balloon Incident of uh, 2023. Both underscore the threat posed uh, by Russia and China. As we saw after 9-11 or with China turning you know, uh, reefs into artificial islands, sometimes we lack imagination. It's not until 9-12 we realize, hey, wait a minute, you know, we were tracking this terrorist thing. With the balloon, it was a sense that we'd seen it, but we didn't act. In the case of deterring Russia, it was a longer-term sort of project. I want to start with Russia's war on Ukraine. What are the most important lessons from that war that are applicable to the Indo-Pacific and to your command? I think you know, for, for me, as I look at it in, uh, in our, our, our place out in 11th Air Force, uh, certainly up in Alaska, and my role as the Alaska NORAD region commander, with what Russia is doing in Ukraine, I think um, you know, even, even a month before the attacks, it, it, it seemed unimaginable to many. Um, so I have to look at Russia, their capabilities, certainly in the high north, and uh, it changes the calculus of what, what they're willing to do. Russia's interest in the Arctic and their posture in the Arctic has not changed. Uh, maybe the volume of some of the flying because of their concentration over the, their, their war in Ukraine has changed, but certainly uh, the way I look at the threat from Russia, uh, if anything, um, it becomes more acute because uh, we're just not sure what, what, what they're willing and able to do uh, in, in the high north. And in, in terms of sort of capabilities and le you know, lessons that are underscored from an air power standpoint, I know that we're looking at this, you know, the chief just gave a rousing address uh, on air power and, and the role and the importance of having air power. In this case, we're sort of in the conflict we're in. I'm not going to ask you about what airplanes should go there because that's not in your job description. But what are some of the broader air power lessons uh, that everybody needs to be learning from this conflict? I tell you, the uh, um, air superiority matters. Um, and um, if you look at what Russia did, especially early on, uh, not having air superiority really matters. Um, and I think everyone should take that lesson and learn. Um, the, uh, um, I, I think also when um, geography matters and uh, that Ukraine being right next to Russia is very uh, critical to this fight. 
But you got to remember too, Russia is right next to America too, just just a couple of miles across the Bering Strait. So we, we should be aware of the threat, the threat from Russia uh, and what they pose uh, certainly to our nation. You know, one thing, um, and I'll relate it back to uh, the, the balloon incident as you, um, as you alluded to in your, your intro, where the balloon floated in, uh, the, the large balloon that was shot down over the, uh, the coast of South Carolina, it, it started in Alaska. Um, and the way I look at the world, um, I look at the world with the, uh, the, the, top of the, the top of the globe in mind, and Alaska is very central. In fact, most avenues of approaches into America are going to come through Alaska. And where the balloon actually tra uh, transgressed through Alaska into Canada and into the lower 48 is the avenue approach that I worry about uh, in my current job up in Alaska. Um, I want to uh, get to uh, Russia and Chinese behavior in a minute, but um, let's talk a little bit about the balloon. Um, there are those who say it shouldn't have been allowed to fly over the United States, that you know we closed the door when the horses were gone by the time we did shoot it down. What were some of the lessons learned from this, and what was the rationale of not engaging it sooner, engaging it over Alaska or maybe over Canada before it got to the continental United States? When this uh, balloon floated into uh, the Alaska um, region, uh, we were watching it very closely. Uh, where it was going to transgress, where it was going to go. Uh, There's a lot of conversations about what a ship that size was going to do from 60 plus thousand feet. Um, where would you actually shoot it down and could you assure um, there's the, the safety of those on the ground. These are certainly the, uh, the calculuses that went into our, our senior leaders, and these are some of the things that we, as the operational commanders, fed. You know, what, what we thought this was going to do. It was obviously going to be a lot easier to shoot this um, craft down over a body of water. Um, and, uh, and as you saw, where it was shot down over, um, over South Carolina. We have to weigh uh, the, certainly the, the threat to the nation, uh, not only in terms of the, um, the uh, potentially a kinetic threat, but also the, uh, the threat of uh, the intelligence that it was uh, potentially gathering. Um, those, th those items were all weighed and our senior leaders made the decision they did. Uh, we, we, we had very close um, uh, contact with it, um, the, the uh, craft as it went through Alaska and passed it off to our Canadian friends. Uh, that's actually a pretty um, seamless thing to do in my hat because um, uh, we're all part of NORAD, uh, Canada and U.S., and we worked very closely together uh, watching this, um, this craft as it made its way across uh, Alaska into Canada then to the lower 48. But, uh, but they, they, they had to make a calculus about what, what, what this was going to do when something that um, is assessed to be the size of three school buses at 60,000 feet came apart and where that would end up, and that was certainly in the, the calculus. Um, and was the uh, intelligence gained in the process, you think, worth the risk of it flying over the United States ultimately? That, those are going to be, as, uh, we, you, as you know, and you saw the pictures of us uh, picking up the, uh, the craft out off the coast of South Carolina, and those assessments are being made right now, and uh, we'll, we'll, fi we'll find out, time will tell. Both China and Russia continue to test uh, American airspace increasingly, right? Your command has always been critical in the defense of the United States and obviously uh, because of the NORAD alliance and, and its importance. Um, walk us through some of the activities and how actually they're changing the nature of the probing, the nature of the testing uh, that's happening on a daily basis when folks in Washington don't see it, but if you're in Alaska, you do. I, I'm not sure how much it's changed in, ter in terms of the Russian uh, probing in our airspace in the high north, uh, but it is continuous. In fact, uh, yeah, um, you know, we, we publicly acknowledge that during, the, during all the balloon discussions, uh, there was a, a Russian incursion into the, uh, the Alaskan Ada's air defense identification zone virtually at the same time. Uh, so it's something we watch very closely uh, because the Arctic is, uh, uh, is a region that is growing in importance. Uh, Russia recognizes it, China recognizes it, and certainly we do, and the other now, um, uh, you know, the other seven Arctic nations. 
the, uh, we recognize it. And as the Arctic changes, because it is changing, there's um, increasingly more opportunity up there. And what we have to watch for is opportunity can bring competition, and competition can bring sometimes um, crisis and conflict. And so we watch it very closely, and we, we need to be, we as America and, and our NATO allies in the North need to be in a position um, to exert our influence if need be. What is the kind of investment we need up there? Permafrost is melting, that creates infrastructure challenges. So when you look 5, 10, 15 years forward as the 11th commander and Alaskan command, what are some of the investments we need to be making up there, right? I mean, there are a lot of places and a lot of it is very remote. What are some of the investments we need to be making in that region? Because when you look at a map, Canada's a good chunk of it, Greenland, and then you got a whole bunch of Russia that surrounds the rest of the Arctic. Yeah, there, there is investment that's going to be needed. And, and you, you, as you look at the changing environment in the Arctic, uh, permafrost is one. Certainly the sea ice and the coastal erosion is very concerning. I mean, many of our long-range surveillance sites are on, are on the coastline up, up in the, um, the northern part of Alaska. And so it is a concern. I think you know, it goes back to what General Van Herc said uh, yesterday in his remarks. It goes, you know, his first, first priority, domain awareness. Um, what does domain awareness look like um, in, in the coming years and even, even decade out? And we're looking at that right now. As we look at what we need for domain awareness, um, certainly the facilities uh, and the, um, uh, the radar sites and other runways and other are going are gonna to follow that. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. We're doing that work to understand what, what is aerospace warning, aerospace control going to look like uh, in, the, in the next decade. It's something, and it's going to in include some investment because I look at some of my facilities right now, uh, certainly with the permafrost, you can, you can absolutely see it on some of the runways and some of the facilities uh, in Alaska. Um, the, uh, the coastal erosion, uh, you're actually seeing uh, you know, some of our radar sites that are right up to where the, the, the coastline is right now. We, we know we're going to have to address this. But before that, we have to figure out what we're going to need for that, that, that all-important domain awareness and how we're going to be in a position to exert uh, the control over the, the high north uh, in now and in the future. And, uh, and, that, and, and that is going to take some investment. When it comes to uh, China and Russia's behavior uh, regionally, I mean, we have a tendency of thinking of uh, China as a Pacific power, Russia as a Pacific power uh, as well. Um, what are you seeing in terms of activities from both of these nations that should be, you know, that you want to telegraph to Washington about how we need to be thinking about both of these? Right? I mean, one is called a pacing challenge or a pacing threat, and the other is the acute one, but they're both persistent. Uh, they're in the neighborhood, and they ain't going anywhere. Yeah, I, I think we, we have to watch very closely. There are certainly incursions um, in, in the high north from, uh, from, from both uh, nations. Uh, we watch um, think, um, illegal fishing activity and other things. Working with my uh, my Coast Guard partners up in the up in the high north, um, the uh, the chance for a northwest passage where you could actually um, reduce your, your your transit time uh, for goods and services from Asia into into European uh, ports. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity as well as um, with uh, changing sea ice, opening up uh, rare earth minerals, and also uh, some uh, gas and oil exploration. Uh, that wasn't possible in the past. So as, as that oppor those opportunities arise, you're seeing a Russia and China taking great interest. Um, you know, as I look at it, it's not just Russia or China, it could, it could be Russia and China. You know, we have uh, um, some very good partners uh, in, in the high north, uh, certainly um, uh, uh, right next door to us with, with our Canadian partners. And I think as we work together uh, as, um, as NATO, as the, uh, um, uh, as the uh, seven of the eight Arctic nations, 
I think there's a good opportunity for us to assure that the, um, the Arctic region remains peaceful in, in the coming years, and I think that should be our focus. Um, uh, the focus to deterrence uh, is both uh, capability and readiness, uh, and I know the 11th is working that equation uh, very hard, not just as the 11th, but uh, as a joint force, uh, and then also with our allies and partners regionally, because I think people don't fully appreciate the span of your command that goes all the way to Singapore uh, at, at, at the end of the day. Talk to us about how you're stepping up your warfighting skills, developing and advancing fifth-generation capabilities, uh, the role, for example, of uh, the Joint Pacific-Alaska Range Complex, which is just an extraordinary uh, capability. Walk us through how you guys are sharpening that all the way across uh, the theater. Yeah, I'll tell you, the, you know, I, 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 the first thing I, I say very publicly um, is, you know, when you look at Alaska, again, if you, if you look at, put Alaska in the center of your map, you realize how strategically located it is. And that's what we say, uh, protect and project is our mission. We're gonna protect Alaska uh, and certainly the high north and, um, and, uh, and the avenues approach into the, into the US. But it's also about projecting. Um, it's, it is the most amazing place to organize, train, and equip air power. Because not only is it very central, we can get anywhere over the pole into Europe, certainly down into the South China Sea and certainly into the Arctic. But we can also train at a level you can't train anywhere else. I can take the, uh, the range complex you referred to, the J Park as we call it, I can take all the range space that we train in in Alaska, and I can fit all the ranges in, the, lo in the, lo the other 49 states and fit them inside that. We can train at a level that no one else can train, and we're continually developing the, uh, the, the J-Park to make it better, uh, to attract more of our allies in there as, as we train at the highest levels, and we're able to do things um, at, in the J-Park that you're not able to do in any other range complex in the world. Uh, and at the same time, you have a, a large fifth-gen concentration there with the, uh, the F-35 and the f the F-22, we have the tankers, the C-17s, and the other assets to, to get airmen and air power on the move quickly. Um, and uh, and we, we're continually training at that, that highest level and, uh, and re ready, to, ready to employ at a moment's notice. You mentioned fifth generation capabilities, and obviously the F-35 is a critical part of that. And it's increasingly becoming the standard fighter aircraft of the NATO alliance. It's import, an important airplane in the Asia-Pacific as well, Japan, uh, Singapore, and a number of other nations that are, are partnered on it, uh, Australia being an important one as well. But ultimately, the concern is it's too short-legged an airplane, especially with its uh, current power plant, that it needs a new generation of power plant, uh, right, which is what the AETP engine uh, is all about. From your perspective, how relevant is the F-35 in a Pacific warfighting construct, and is it still relevant even if it doesn't get a new engine? Uh, that, that offers, say, 30% more range. I tell you, the F-35 is a, it's, it's an amazing aircraft, and it's, it's really coming along uh, as, as uh, we continue to develop it, certainly with our other partner nations uh, in the F-35 program. It's not just a, um, you know, you talk about it being a, the, a, a, the cornerstone of many of the, our NATO nations. It's a cornerstone fighter in the Arctic now, too. Um, you look at now with, with Sweden and Finland uh, soon to be assessing in the NATO. So now, of, of the eight Arctic nations, seven of them are going to be in NATO. Um, if you look at the, the nations, um, all the nations in the Arctic, with the exception of Russia and Sweden, will be flying the F-35 as well when, um, when, when Finland joins and they, um, uh, they, they take on their F-35 capability as well as the Canadians. 
it is going to be a, a critical fighter in the high north uh, as well as Asia. You said, and if we, as we continue to develop this fighter and we continue to work work to integrate it and uh, integrate our our, uh, our operations, um, it's going to be a, a a powerful tool for us, not only in in Europe but certainly in, in the Asia Pacific. You bring up range. Range is a problem in every one of our fighters. Uh, they're relatively short range. Uh, most fighters were built with a European scenario in mind, uh, including the F-22. Uh, that's why we continually look for ways to extend range. Um, obviously, Secretary Kendall and Chief Brown today spoke about the next, the next generation of, of, of tankers to allow our fighters and other uh, aircraft to operate closer into, into threat ranges. And it's something we're going to have to address going forward. Uh, there are technologies out there, and uh, they're certainly being assessed, uh, different, different power plants um, um, uh, for, for the F-35, and we need to continue watching that and, and watching that, how, how that develops. Um, certainly, if you can get me a fighter with longer range, uh, I, I would actually welcome it, especially with the, with the ranges, not just in the South Pacific and the Pacific, but certainly in Alaska. People don't realize how, how large that the, uh, the Alaska terrain is and how, how um, it, when we would go to a conflict there, if we were to go to a conflict in Alaska, uh, how difficult that would be with the ranges. Uh, and they, and you know, there, there's a limited amount of tankers out there. And so, um, uh, certainly, certainly concern, but I'm very encouraged with the development of the F-35. I'm very encouraged with all the nations of, um, that are operating it, certainly in the Pacific. And, and I really like how it looks, it's gonna look in the Arctic in the future when you're gonna have potentially that many countries in the, uh, operating in, in the uh, Arctic region flying and integrating with their F-35 programs. Uh, and each one of which is a sensor uh, communicating node, right? So people have a tendency of thinking of it just as the jet, whereas the most attractive feature is its combat system. Yeah, and I, and I tell you that was the um, um, that, that's the game changing in, in the in the F-22 as well. Just the ability to um, to bring in information um, uh, to the operator and use that information um, uh, uh, in, in in order to get, gain air superiority, strike targets. Um, it, it's certain, certainly a, a big part of the F-35 program. So when you talk about range, as uh, one of the commanders, the important commanders the nation has in the region, what sort of range do we need to be considering for our next generation airplane if it's going to tickle your itch? Without getting into anything classified on NGAD, what's the ballpark range that you need? Because a lot of our fighters, as you said, are short range because they were built for a European theater. Yeah, and I, I tell you, you know, we, we, as we look at futures, future combat, certainly range and payload are going to be extremely important. Um, you're, you know, when you talk about going um, 100 miles, it's not, you know, we're, we're going to talk about going hundreds of miles, if not over a thousand miles into a, um, into a threat area. And that could, that could happen in the high north, that could happen in the, in the Pacific. So I, I think certainly having that ability to extend your range into threat areas, and, and that's exactly what the Secretary and the Chief were talking about, when they, uh, about having tankers that could take our, our, our aircraft further into, into threat ranges, especially when you think of the ranges in the Pacific. Uh, let me ask you uh, two last questions. Uh, one, there are a lot of questions about agile combat employment and what it means, especially in a hypersonic range when the shooting starts. And things are going to happen much more quickly than they ever will. And indeed, as one uh, senior leader put it, it's not that we're getting our units out of the way, it's that we're going to lose units. It's just going to be a much more complicated problem. How are you thinking through what this actually looks like, given that the ubiquity of space assets, uh, you know, I mean, that's calling into question the future of stealth, for example, right? And if you can see it, you can strike it uh, pretty quickly. H how do you explain this to people and how do people need to be thinking about it? Well, when I, I mean, you, you talk about agile combat employment or ACE, to me it's about giving the, um, um, uh, an adversary um, 
a, another problem set. That adversary is not going to know where our power is coming from. We're not going to be just at a few, a few very large bases in the Pacific. We're going to be at many, many locations. And we're training to it this day. We're, we're operating F-22s and F-35s in a manner that we never thought we would operate, uh, e even, even 10 years ago. Um, there, there was, there was uh, times that um, uh, we would always want to have eight, 10,000 feet of runway with, with arresting cables for emergencies. Now we're, we're, we're sending F-22s, exercising, sending them to very, very short fields to operate. Uh, we're accepting some risk in training, but that risk, uh, we, we, needed, we need to uh, mitigate that risk and operate this way in training because we know in combat we're going to have to operate from many, many locations so we can give that adversary that problem set that they don't know where air power is going to be coming from. And they're going to have many, many places to, uh, to address, not, not just the very few large uh, fixed bases in the Pacific. Uh, let me ask you one last question, which is a mindset question. We're celebrating Vietnam airmen uh, at this Air and Space Forces, uh, Aerospace uh, Warfare Symposium, and the chief talked about past conflicts and the sacrifices the airmen have to be willing to make. And in war game after war game, any conflict with China results in not just numbers of airplanes lost, but numbers of squadrons lost. There's a sense, right, that message is being delivered from senior leadership. Is it being delivered to airmen? How is it being delivered to airmen? that this next scrape, which we're trying to deter, might be so bloody that, you know, it might even surpass World War II in some respects. Well, I we, we talk about this all the time. We talk about it with our airmen. And I, and I, as a commander, I talk about it in terms of risk. Our level of risk we're going to um, have to be willing to incur in a, a an engagement with a, a, a large power like a China or a Russia is going to be very different uh, than the way we fought as an Air Force in places like the Middle East in, um, in, the, in the counterinsurgency. Our risk um, uh, that we're going to be putting our airplane and our air crews and certainly even our ground crews in some of the locations we're operating is going to have to be at a much different level uh, than it was where we were, had, we were always very confident in the bases we were at, very confident in our air superiority, very confident even in our communication lines and, and how we're moving, how, how we're moving in, to and from theater. Um, and that, that risk tolerance is going to be a much, much higher level um, because there are, there are going to be losses if you're fighting a peer comp competitor like a China or Russia. Um, and, uh, and these are conversations many of us who are my age and um, in, in the Air Force had when, we, when the Cold War was ending as, we were, en as we, were, we were all coming into service. And those conversations kind of went away in the post-Cold War. And now the conversations are coming back. Um, and we're, 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 we're talking about, you know, uh, when we go into an engagement, what are the acceptable losses? And we're, do, we're, we're weaving that into exercises and in, in how we train every day. Sir, thanks very much. Best of luck uh, up there, seeing as how you're on the front line. I think many Americans don't realize exactly how close Russia is to the United States. It, it, and uh, I tell you, the, the, um, you, you, when you the, the high altitude balloon, I think, showed a lot of people in our, in our country that, um, that we, you know, where, where Alaska sits in the high north and how avenues of approaches into our nation very, very often flow through Alaska and the high north. Uh, we've been aware of this all, um, very often in my, in my job as the, the Alaska Norad region uh, commander, uh, but I think the, uh, the, the high altitude balloon showed what, what it would look like an ingress into our nation. It's not Seward's folly. It's maybe the best investment we ever made. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it is, it's a wonderful state, um, and uh, you know, I couldn't be more, uh, more thrilled to be up there and be in command of 11th Air Force and be part of the Pacific team and be part of the NORAD team. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.